Well, if Jesus appeared to you in kingdom glory like he did to the apostle Peter on the Mount of Transfiguration and told you that he wanted you to die for him and he would supply all the grace that you needed, would you do it? Pastor Jack Hughes shares, I have news for you. He already asked you in Luke 14, 26 to take up your cross and follow him. The phrase to take up your cross means to die to self, die to what you want, and potentially even die as a martyr. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to actually be put into such a position where you had to stand for Christ and die or deny him and live? Listen to this story of a young, modest married 22-year-old woman who was still nursing a baby when she was arrested for being unwilling to sacrifice to pagan idols in the third century. She was thrown immediately into a dungeon. Those who came to see her in prison pleaded with her to just offer a small sacrifice. But she replied, the dungeon is to me a palace. Again, she was brought before the Roman emperor and given the opportunity to go free if she would only offer a small token of sacrifice to the pagan gods, but she refused. Her father was there with her crying baby and pleaded with her to offer just one small pinch of incense to the pagan deities. She said, I will not sacrifice. She was then sentenced to be torn apart by wild beasts in the arena on the next pagan holiday. On the day of her execution, she was placed inside the arena with a large bull where she where she suffered being tossed about by an enraged bull. Amazingly, she seemed to be unhurt and more concerned about her modesty than the bull as she carefully covered herself as the bull had torn her clothing. Strangely, the bull refused to attack her any further, so they removed her from the arena and brought her back to be killed by a gladiator. Yet the gladiator, who was assigned to kill her, trembled so violently that he could only stab her weakly. The gladiator guided his sword to a vital area so that she was mortally wounded and died. Would you pass the test? Would you let others be put to death before denying Christ? Would you let your children be put to death before denying Christ? Would you willingly give up possessions And be sent to jail instead of denying Christ. Many have and still are giving their lives for the name of Christ. You may have even heard about the the, the clerk who's making a stand as it relates to uh, same-sex marriage in our news this week. And she's incarcerated because of her stand for Christ. We are so separated from life and death persecution for the cause of Christ that we really can't fathom what it would be like to lose the world and our lives for Jesus. But be encouraged. If and when that time comes, God's grace will come upon you like a flood, and most likely you'll be able to walk through the fire with boldness and courage. And such was the case for 12 hand-picked men with the exception of one. And we're going to continue our study in Mark chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn there if you're not there already. The faithful testimonies of these men as they followed Christ, not only in life, 
but also in death has led many to be impassioned to also live and yes, even die for the Lord's sake. If you were with us last week, the outline in your notes should look reasonably familiar to you, although I made some edits so that you could have ample space under point number four, um, because that's the one that we're going to be finishing or attempt to finish today. And if you weren't here, you're welcome to go onto our church website um, to listen to last week's message and catch up with us. But let's read the passage together again, and here's what it says, starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 13, and the NAS says, And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Last Sunday, we began answering the question together, what principles can you and I learn from Jesus' four-part approach to handpicking his 12 disciples? And we covered the first three points and the first three verses. And then under the first point, we saw that our Lord spent the entire night in prayer before he personally called the 12. We then noted the special and intimate discipleship relationship that our Lord cultivated as he personally discipled and prepared the 12 to go out for future ministry. All this would take place before Jesus commissioned the 12 to preach, heal, and cast out demons just as he did with his special authority behind their ministry. We considered principles of application from these points, and now we've come to verse 16 where Jesus personally identified the 12, which is the fourth and final part of the Lord's selection. At first glance, you might look at this uh, text right here in verses 16 through 19 and say, well, it just looks like a list of names. And that's because that's what it is. But I'm hoping that as we look at the list that it's going to come alive, especially as we look at their number and their names. Let's begin by taking some time to look at the number and its significance. Look at the beginning of verse 16. It says, and he, Jesus, appointed the 12. Have you ever stopped and wondered why there were 12 disciples? Have you ever spent any time thinking about that? 12, that, 12 disciples who would eventually go on and be named the 12 apostles. Why not 15? Why not 20? Why not as some who have a charismatic background and have heard teaching that there are thousands of apostles. Why 12? Well, to get our answer, we need to consider the broader context of Scripture. And the number 12 not only corresponds to the 12 tribes of Israel, but it also relates to the future ministry roles that the 12 apostles 
are going to fulfill. Turn to Luke chapter 22 so you can see this. The context in Luke 22 involves Jesus talking to his disciples because the dispute began as they debated about who would be the greatest. But starting in verse 29 of the 22nd chapter, the Lord graciously instructs them with a consolation. He says this, And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Why are there 12 of them? Because in the future, there is going to be 12 thrones that the 12 apostles are actually going to occupy. And this prophecy will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom when the tribes of Israel are again identified and when they're brought to their glorious kingdom in righteousness and salvation. And each of those tribes is going to have a, a point person, a designated leader to oversee their, that tribe, and it is going to be one of the apostles. And we know this, that it, Judas won't be there. <laughs> we know that uh, he was replaced by Matthias, and he will um, sit and, in Judas Iscariot's uh, otherwise place that he would have had had he stayed faithful and uh, been one of the elect apostles. Not only does the number 12 have earthly and temporal significance as it relates to the apostles' role in the millennial kingdom, but there's also an eternal significance. Turn with me now to all the way to the end of your Bibles to Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14. And here the context is describing the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. Listen to what it says. And I want you to pay close attention to the use of the number 12 in these verses. Revelation 21, verses 12 through 14, starting in verse 12. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels. And the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The 12 apostles will be memorialized forever in eternity on, on, the, on the great wall, the true great wall of Jerusalem. The holy city, the new Jerusalem. It's going to have their names embedded with jewels into its foundation. Is that not just amazing to think about? That's, that's, that's amazing. What an extraordinary privilege and honor these men will hold for all eternity. And it's with that said that I wanted to take some time for us to consider a vite of each man's life, which our second point is going to allow us to do. But before we move on, there's one more reason and perhaps the most significant as to why Jesus is identifying the 12. What is the true significance of the 12 at this point in the Gospel of Mark? According to Dr. MacArthur, he says this, Our Lord's selection 
of the 12 constitutes the new spiritual leadership of Israel. An unmistakable message is sent to the leaders of Israel that they are unqualified and that they are exempted. An unmistakable message is sent to the nation that the corrupt leadership to which they have been subjected is rejected by God, judged, and condemned. End quote. Jesus is exposing the entire false religious system of the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the role of the priests. Nobody is exempt. And Mark's gospel account doesn't include the first cleansing of the temple where the Lord would have had a direct encounter with the Sadducees and the money-changing tables as he cleared them out and said for them to get out. They've, they've turned the, uh, the place of worship, the prized place of worship, into a den of robbers and thieves. And then later on, This is the very reason why our Lord lets them know in Mark 13 that the temple will be destroyed and not one stone, not one stone will be left upright. It'll all be turned over. Mark's gospel has allowed us to see the Lord already going after the scribes and the Pharisees and their their prized Sabbath traditions that were filled with hypocrisy. Jesus was also um, falsely accused of working when he healed on the Sabbath in their presence. And so there's this, we can go back to what we've learned already and we see what's taking place and it just continues to, to heighten, right? I mean, they were already watching and counting the number of steps that he was taking as he was traveling with the disciples and they were going over the restricted limit there. They were already um, picking heads of grain and were consuming food for themselves, which they were able to do according to the Old Testament law, but according to the Pharisees, they were breaking their restrictions. These were legalistically imposed instructions that were being laid upon God's people. And Jesus has already brought it to a breaking point when he professed that the Son of Man, referring to himself, is Lord even over their Sabbath. And we talked about the result of that. Those were fighting words. Now the plans are in motion for the leaders to destroy our Lord according to Mark 3, 6. And our Lord knew their plot. It also coincided with the Father's divine plan as it continues to unfold. With the coming Messiah would come new wineskins. With new wineskins, the new covenant. With a new covenant would come new leadership. Dr. MacArthur goes on to describe it this way. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the rabbis, priests, they were liars. They were false teachers, all of them. They misrepresented the Old Testament. They misinterpreted the Old Testament. They corrupted the people. They produced sons of hell. And they are replaced by the most unlikely group of 12 guys, none of whom comes out of the religious world. Not one was a rabbi. Not one was a scribe. Not one was a theologian. Not one was an academic, a priest, a Pharisee, a Sadducee. Not one. Which is to demonstrate not only our Lord's scorn for the leadership in general, but is scorn for the whole process of what a leader in their minds was. And this is living proof that the kingdom of Messiah had no relationship to Judaism, that the nation and its leaders 
had no connection to God. They thought they knew God. They thought that they had the inside track on God. They thought they knew what God desired, what God wanted. They thought that they were the protectors and purveyors of the will of God. Nothing could have been further from the truth. They were of their father, Satan. They were the ones who were of the devil, end quote. I think we've all always appreciated Dr. MacArthur and his clarity as he drives really at the heart of, of issues. And we, we see this in the text. So when we see the number 12 in Mark 3.16 that our Lord identified 12 specifically, it is good that we see God's purposes behind it. There just wasn't a temporal significance that they were going to rule and reign during the millennial kingdom or the eternal value. But as we've heard, Jesus is boldly indicting the religious leaders. This is a scathing judgment against the leadership of Israel. And so we see this progression taking place. And not only does he warn them of the tragic consequences of their rejection of him, but this rejection would also be accompanied um, I'm sorry I lost my place in my notes <laughs> while at the same time warning them of the tragic consequences of their rejection yet they keep on rejecting him anyway and so we see this they're, they're, we're about to go to our next passage if you look down you're going to see that they're going to claim actually that Jesus is of who that, that he has an evil spirit Beelzebul they're, they're the ones who are going to um, start crediting his work and what he's doing with Satan when the Lord Jesus Christ is actually trying to let them know that they're the ones who need to be rebuked. And we all know how fast a year goes by, don't we? Just goes by in a minute. The Lord Jesus Christ is been ministering up to this point now he's it's uh, about a year and his ministry was how long just just a few years right and so the window of his ministry is gradually shrinking and the reality of the cross is coming closer and closer so who is going to step in once the lord jesus christ dies once he goes to the cross, once he is crucified, who's going to carry on the work of the ministry? The answer to this question is 12 hand-picked men. And starting in verse 16, each man is mentioned by their name. And after considering the fact that each will be sitting on a throne in the millennial kingdom, after considering the fact that their names are going to be forever memorialized in, in the wall in eternity in the new Jerusalem, I thought it would be good for us to at least take a snapshot of each of their lives just to grow in our appreciation of God's work in their hearts and in the lives of these men. So our remaining time, we're going to have the opportunity to consider the life of Peter and then James, and then next Sunday we'll continue working our way down the list as we take a snapshot. By the way, a few of these men, there's very little information in, in the rest of the scriptures and even in extra biblical literature 
it's very limited as to what we know about them. So it's not going to take as long as you might be tempted to think. Let's start with a snapshot of Peter's life. Look at verse 16. It says, And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he had given the name Peter. The New Testament contains four lists of apostles, and Peter is always listed first with Andrew, James, and John. And these four men were chosen by Christ to be in his inner circle of apostles, which he kept in close range. And like most of us, Peter was far from perfect and can be described as someone who lacked self-control and for saying some untimely, even dumb things, if I could just call it like it is. Nevertheless, Jesus chose Peter to be the leader and the spokesperson of the twelve. And at this point, you might think, well, my goodness, did, did he make a mistake? I mean, think about it. Peter was outspoken. He was aggressive. He was a proud fisherman with, with no education. And our text says Jesus gave Simon a new name, Peter, which means rock. When you read the New Testament, Peter is sometimes called Simon, Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, Cephas, right? All these names come up. Barjona means son of Jonah, so Simon, son of Jonah, okay? But Cephas is Aramaic uh, for the word rock, okay? The Aramaic word, excuse me, for rock. And the name Peter or rock can be understood both positively and negatively, when you call someone a rock, you might be referring to them as being stable, reliable, or immovable. Or you might negatively understand it and mean that it could mean have negative connotation. They're stubborn, they're inflexible, or not very smart. We have an expression that reflects that. They're dumb as a rock. Yeah, right? Or sometimes we say things like, they're a real rockhead, you know? Or that was rockheaded when I did that. Um, Jesus had positive thoughts in mind when giving Simon the name Peter. In fact, the name seems to be prophetic because, as one pastor shared initially, Peter was more like spiritual jello. In the Gospels, when Peter does something wrong or foolish, Jesus often refers to him as Simon, a subtle reminder to Peter that he was not living up to his new name. In Luke 5, Peter doubted Jesus' knowledge of fishing. You'll recall when he wanted to go out in the heat of the day, right? In John 13, 8, Peter is the one who rebuked Jesus in the upper room saying, you shall never wash my feet. In Mark 14, Peter fell asleep when he was supposed to be on watch while, keeping, while praying. It was Peter who impulsively cut off the Roman soldier's ear with a sword and who wanted to fight the entire Roman guard, you remember that? All the soldiers who are professionally trained to kill and spend time in the arena and training. There's Peter grabbing a sword and, and trying to take him on. In Luke 22, you may recall Peter's boast. Though all will fall away because of you, I will never deny you. Only to have what happened. In Matthew 26, not deny him once, not twice, but three times. 
before Jesus was crucified, he told the apostles to go to Galilee and wait for him. But Peter, being impatient, encouraged some of the others to go fishing instead. And after this scenario, the resurrected Jesus rebuked Peter, again calling him Simon, and asked him three times if he really loved him. Paul tells us in Galatians, when he wrote to the Galatian church, that he had to do what? Rebuke Peter to his face, even after the church was started. But don't let this one fact escape you. Take notice, Christ chose Peter to be one of his closest companions, to enjoy special privileges and to lead and to be the spokesman of the other apostles. Peter was far from perfect, just like you and I. Peter had lots of faults, like we all do. Peter did some really stupid things, just as we all do at times. But Peter was chosen in spite of all his faults to serve the Lord in a specific capacity. And the same is true for us. The exact same is true for us. Over the years, Peter continued to grow and change and be transformed so that by the end of his life, he was totally a different man. And this is what God will do for us. He who has promised, he who has promised and cannot lie, has said in his word, Paul recorded it for us in Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 1.6. As Pastor Jack Hughes said, Unless God kills you, you're not going to be perfect overnight. It's good insight. It's the only way you're going to get perfection. That's if uh, you're called into his presence immediately. It's going to happen slowly. It takes time. It's, it's gradual. And this is why discipleship is so important within the church. It's, it's daily, picking up our cross daily and walking with the Lord, living a life of denying self and following him. In God's timing, and perfection is not going to happen, we understand this, on this side of the cross. But God, in his own way, in his own timing, as you seek him in prayer, as you spend time studying him in his word, he's going to do what? He's going to transform us. He's going to allow our minds to be renewed. He's going to, to grow us and mature us. And again, it goes back to the fundamentals and the ministry pillars of our church, studying the word, not just hearing it preached on Sunday, but having an opportunity to come to the First Thessalonians Bible study on Thursday night, to have an opportunity to make sure that we're making time to, to, to read through the scriptures and to study areas where we need to grow, where our weaknesses are. He will grow you. He will change you. And practically, this can keep us from wishing that we were someone else, right? Or, or somehow our circumstances are, would be different. It can help us to realize that God is perfecting you right where he has you, that he's growing you in those circumstances. And God can take our sinful impatience and help us to cultivate patience, just like he did with Peter. God can take your lack of self-control and mature you through fleshly impulses, 
just like he did with the apostle Peter. God can take your denials and lack of faith and help you to be a testimony of faithfulness in future ministry, just like he did with Peter. Tradition tells us that Peter um, was crucified and he made a request that he would not be crucified as the Lord was, but that he would be inverted because he didn't even count himself worthy to be crucified in the same manner as our Lord. Think about the spiritual growth and progress that the Lord allowed in the life of Peter. A man who through most of his earthly ministry spoke first and thought second. A man who lacked discernment and even rebuked Christ at times, displaying his own pride and foolishness. Peter would eventually be used to record two cherished epistles that help us to see just how much the Lord grew him before his life came to an end. May our hearts be strengthened and encouraged by the spiritual growth and progress that we see in the life of Peter as we consider his sanctifying work in our life, what he's doing in our circumstances, how he's growing us and maturing us. Well, the next name we see on this list is at the beginning of verse 17. James, the son of Zebedee. And when you study up on James, you need to make sure that you have the correct James under the microscope in the, in the New Testament. There are actually four uses, uh, four different people who go by that name. And so those of you who carry that name were given that as your, your birth name. I can think of James Lee right, right here. Right? I, you could ask the question, which James were you really named after? Okay, There, there are some options. And if your parents said um, an apostle, well, they get half of them right there. So uh, that's a good thing. First, there's James, the son of Zebedee, who we are referring to in this passage. Then there's also James, the son of Alphaeus, another one of the apostles that we're going to look at later in our passage. Then there's James, the father of the apostle Judas, not Iscariot. And then fourth and finally, there's James, the half-brother of Jesus, who became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, who would eventually go on and write the epistle of James in the New Testament. Well, let's look at James, the son of Zebedee, the older brother of the apostle John, who was also a fisherman. And here's a summary of what we know about him from the Gospels, and then we can see what principle we might be able to extract from his life. We first noted James leaving his fishing trade back in our study in Mark chapter 120. After being called to discipleship, he would later become a, uh, an apostle. And we've seen the beginning of this transition, even in the passage that we're currently on right now. James, like Peter, John, and Andrew, was among the innermost circle of Christ's 12 hand-picked disciples. James, Peter, Andrew, and John are always mentioned together. Being among the inner circle was a tremendous privilege. For instance, according to Mark 5.37, only Peter, James, and John got to see uh, Jesus raise Jairus from the dead. It was also true that in Matthew 17.1, on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, Peter was one of the apostles who was able to, to witness the transfiguration of our Lord. Peter, James, and John were specifically pulled aside 
in the garden to keep watch and pray when Jesus was agonizing um, before going to the cross. James, like his brother John, he must have been a loud and outspoken guy because he got this nickname from the the Lord that they shared, Boanerges, and I always struggle to say it. You may have noticed that already, which means sons of thunder. James was loud. He was proud. And he wasn't very tactful. For instance, in Mark 10, verses 34 and 37, James and John asked Jesus for a favor. Of course, James, being the oldest, probably did all the speaking for his brother while he stood to the side. And I mentioned this before. I'm the first. Uh, I have a twin brother, Jay. I was born first, and it was true for us. I would always do all the talking while he just stood at the side being the, the younger, smaller brother. And the request that they're going to make is very revealing, and it tells us a little about him. In Mark 10, 34 through 37, James and John came up to Jesus and, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. Now, typically, and by default, we don't process and think about things through an eternal perspective. But just think about the reality of what they're requesting. How many sides does Jesus have? He's just like us, right? Human, right? One on the left, one on the right. Two. How many apostles? Twelve, right? And they, they're, they're asking specifically, we want, to, we want in one of those two spots, and we want to sit. Now, how long is eternity? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> forever. I mean, you think about the magnitude of this request. They want those spots right next to him forever. And what makes this request even more disturbing is that in the preceding context, Jesus just told him that he was going to be tried by the Gentiles, that he was going to be scourged and carry a cross and was going to be killed. And all James and his younger brother are concerned about is their own power and position. And James is so unsympathetic and so self-focused that when you read a text like this, you really, you can almost get embarrassed for him. He's, teacher, what do you, we want you to do whatever, <laughs> will you do whatever I ask? You know, that doesn't even qualify the question beforehand. You give us the two best seats in your eternal house. We want both places of honor. We look at that and we can be struck by that. But a principle that we can take away from this is that our pride will also, in subtle ways, when we're discontent with where the Lord has us, allow us to do something very similar. We know that in the end, He has promised eternity to us. That we're going to spend it with Him in glory. That every tear will be wiped away. That there'll be no pain. And everybody said, Amen. And that there will be a reverse of the curse. And that every man or woman who has asked God to forgive them and trusted completely in Jesus Christ for salvation as Savior and Lord, he or she will be saved. 
as if anything else, anything else is needed beyond that point, right? That we will be with him in glory. But just like James, our pride can cause us to think about our position and promotions in this life. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think of pride and promotion in your own life? How might the Lord have you deal with it so that it doesn't become an impediment to your spiritual walk with him? We tend to think that we are less evil than we really are. And we dismiss our pride and its influence in our life. Or even when it impacts our view of others. But that's not the end of it. Right after, they ask if they can have the two greatest places of honor in Mark 10, 38 through 40, it says this, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized and with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Here's an interesting question to think about. For who has it been prepared? For you? For you? Maybe. Maybe, maybe for you, as you serve him, as you love him, as you draw near to him, as you're the, 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 the driving purpose and overarching theme of your life is Jesus Christ, as he grows you. And remember, we all start out as what? Rockheads. We're, we're all Peters in the beginning. It's true. But God is growing us. He's maturing us with purpose. And I know the lesson that we needed to take away is the same one that the Lord would have them see. Hey, don't be so concerned about the seats. I mean, we're all going to be in his presence. And we. And the point I was trying to make is that in and of itself is enough. It is. What's so interesting is they don't even know what Jesus is talking about here. They don't realize that Jesus is talking about being submersed into crucifixion. And they say, yeah, we are able, as long as we get the best seats next to you, you know, oh yeah, we can do that. And Jesus is letting them know that they would indeed suffer martyrdom. But the decision to sit on his right or left has already been decided. Well, here's another cringing example of how the sons of thunder acted. It's found in Luke 9, 51 and 54. And Jesus He'd been ministering in Galilee and was headed towards Jerusalem. And he was passing through Samaria. And he, Luke says that um, he came to what was a, a certain Samaritan village. And most Jews would have never have stepped foot into Samaria. In fact, they would have um, specifically made a 40-mile, a approximately 40-mile um, alternate route detour, if you will, um, to go around so they didn't even have to step on the, the soil of Samaria. Why? Because 
there was so much disdain back and forth, and the Jews and the Samaritans had conflicts that stemmed back for almost 500 years. They despised each other. But here we see Jesus is traveling through the forbidden zone. You know, Jesus was able to, to look beyond that. He knew the need for all men. And he sends some of the disciples up ahead to make arrangements for him. And the Samaritans, recognizing that they are Jews, must have been like, why is he going that way? <laughs> you know, he needs to, to, to turn. No, no Jews are going to step through, through this way. And the disciples were probably thinking in their minds, well, we're on our ways towards Jerusalem, and that was probably going to be all that the Samaritans would need to hear as they blur- blurted out, you guys are heretics. What are you, what are you doing here? And they would probably have responded that they weren't going to show hospitality to them or to their master and told them just to get out of there. Anyone who is a friend of Jerusalem wouldn't be a friend of ours, would be their perspective. Well, in Luke 9.54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you see how impulsive, how they, how their, their lust for power to take everything into their own hands? See how dangerous they were? You see how much discipleship was necessary? And it's so true, we, we need growing seasons, right, before we're given responsibilities. We do, we need, to, we need to mature because we can bring shame to the name of Christ. We can misuse power. And this was true. We see Peter do it when he even slashed off the ear of Malachus. And now we see it right here. Lord, do you want us to go ahead and just call down fire upon them? And so they got this image from 2 Kings uh, chapter 2, 10 through 12, where the wicked king sends a captain with 50 armed soldiers on two different occasions to try to uh, intimidate Elijah the prophet into doing the king's bidding. And both times, Elijah does what? He commands fire to come down from heaven and consume, right? And so they want some Elijah fire. They're like, Lord, we're right here. We got your back. You want us to just go ahead, take care of this Samaritan village for you? We're just going to call fire down. We can take care of this right now. And the Lord had to rebuke them. They were power hungry. They were loud. They were boisterous, hotheads. And that is just a glimpse of why Jesus called them the sons of thunder. But do you know what James' greatest act was? And this will be an appropriate closing thought for us. Do you know what James's greatest act was? Turn to Acts 12. Y'all want you to see this? And we're going to close with this. Acts 12, verses 1 and 2. In every instance, as I alluded to before, where James is mentioned, he is mentioned with John. In Acts 12, 1 and 2, it tells us about James' greatest act. Now at about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. This is the last mention of James, the brother of John. 
Here again, he is mentioned with his brother. And like always, he's mentioned first. Again, probably because he was the oldest and most outspoken. He was the first apostle to be martyred for the cause of Christ. This occurred around 43 AD. James is unique in that he is the only apostle's death that, death that is actually mentioned in the New Testament, apart from Judas Iscariot, who, of course, committed suicide. He was first to give his life for the Lord and the ministry. But listen to this. Clement of Alexandria, who wrote about 200 AD, tells us that a false witness was paid to accuse James. And when James was brought before the judgment seat, he preached the gospel, and the man who was paid to falsely accuse him repented on the spot and gave his life to Christ. Both men beheaded that day by a sword. Think about the spiritual journey and progress that transpired in the life of the Apostle James. Think about it. He went from a place where he was asking God to call down judgment and fire on an entire Samaritan village to a place where he grew and the Lord stretched his faith and that even after being falsely accused, that he would stand and preach the gospel and have the opportunity to see the man that betrayed him come to faith and to forgive him. That is powerful. And we can only wonder if the words of our Lord Jesus Christ were what influenced him the most when Christ was on the cross and he said those infamous words. Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If that, just that lasting impression on the life of James that allowed him to forgive his betrayer right before both of them were executed. These are powerful, powerful testimony, testimonies of God's work in the lives of these men. And we've covered two, and we'll continue our journey through the list when we return next Sunday Lord willing. Please join me as I close our time in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bow our heads, rejoicing in you, celebrating you, praising you, because you're worthy of our affection, our adoration. And we pray, Father, that you would continue to Allow us to be overwhelmed by the abundance of grace that you're pouring out in our lives. And we know that there's a residue of the old man, our old nature that we have been born again and that we are new creations. But there's a residue that sticks to us that tries to draw us back to think the ways that we did, to, to minimize sin, to minimize your glory. And yet you and your faithfulness are growing us forward. And we just want to take time as a church family just to thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that you've given us 
to be at a church where your word is high and lifted up, where we can continue to grow forward in our faith as we trust you more and more. And we are asking that you would continue to conform us to Christ, that you would indeed take your divine scalpel and cut away the residue and the, the remnant of the old person so that we can continue to make gospel progress in our lives, just like you did in the lives of the apostles. And we don't know what our lives will end, how they'll end, but we know that you know already. And we just pray that you'll continue to help us to walk in faithfulness. I pray, Father, for anyone that might be here today that doesn't have a relationship with you, that today would be the day, just as it was shared in the sermon, that they would go all in, that they would ask you for forgiveness, that they would repent of their sin, and that they would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Would you do that work for the heart that is trying to live life and figure life out on their own? May they join the company of all believers who have been saved from eternal damnation and continue to be saved daily and weekly from ourselves. We thank you for giving us such a foundation in Christ. We love you and praise you. We look forward to our time. We ask that you'll bless second hour as we study the sin of anger as well. We give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.